Hi, I'm Doug Hooley, and you're listening to a podcast called The Called Out Cafe. In the late 1990s, my wife Angela and I had an idea that would allow our three kids to earn some money during the summer months. We would plant a half acre of blueberries for our kids to pick and then sell. Blueberry bushes take up to eight years to mature and can last for longer than 40 years. Over 20 years later now, the kids have all moved away from home, leaving Angela and I to take care of the 500 blueberry plants. Now, that was some fine planning on our part. But as poor of a plan as it may have been, there's a lot of time to think when one performs repetitive tasks in the blueberry field, like picking and weeding and pruning. I think a lot about the agricultural imagery that the Bible uses when I'm working in the field. Jesus told parables about sowing seeds, planting vineyards, and harvesting. Each year, we have two kinds of harvests on our micro farm. There's the one that we look forward to, the harvesting of the blueberries, which now usually starts in mid-June and lasts for about a month. Then, at least before I installed the ground cover material that keeps the weeds down, there was a harvest of the weeds, which I tried to accomplish about once a month throughout much of the year. A few years ago, we decided to go organic with our blueberries. What going organic mostly means to me as a practical matter is that rather than spraying an herbicide to control weeds, I spent up to like eight hours per month moving down about two miles of rows, bent over with a hoe in my hands, manually removing the weeds from around the base of the plants. Some farmers don't do that. They just let the weeds grow. I think it's better for yield. Even though it's physically demanding and monotonous, it is also very necessary to maximize the quantity and quality of the blueberry harvest. Two different harvests. One that we look forward to and makes all the previous work and expense worthwhile, at least in theory. And a second harvest that is dreaded but necessary, the harvest of the weeds. The Bible speaks of harvests in association with the return of the Messiah, Jesus. We'll see that like in our blueberry field, Scripture reveals there's actually more than one harvest associated with the end of the age. There is the rapture, or harvest, of the ecclesia, what most call the church, and that'll occur in conjunction with the return of Jesus. And then there's the second harvest, a harvest of the wicked, Without close study and comparison of the various passages of Scripture that clarify these two harvests, a person can become confused, think the Bible contradicts itself, or arrive at false conclusions while trying to pound a square peg of interpretation into a round hole of truth. Understanding the two different harvests, and more specifically, who is involved in them, is important to understanding a parable that Jesus will relay a little later on in the Olivet Discourse. One of these harvests is talked about in Matthew chapter 13. There, it tells us that one day Jesus was sitting by a lake and a large crowd of people started to gather around him. He began teaching them by telling them stories. On this particular day, his story started off with a farming theme. There was a lot of agricultural work going on in the area, and Jesus knew it was the best way to relate to people. Jesus first told them the story we've already went over in a previous podcast regarding seeds that were planted. You know, the one where some fell by the wayside, some had no root, etc. That's found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 3 to 8. 
Well, following that parable of the seeds, Jesus told his disciples exactly what this story meant. After Jesus told how seed, or the gospel, is planted with various levels of success, he moved on to a story about weeds, or tares, as they're called in the King James Version of the Bible. Jesus explained that weed seed can get mixed in with the good seed and sprout alongside the intended crop. He goes on to lay out what his method of dealing with those weeds or tares would be. Listen to this passage found in Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore again, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in a bundle to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Later, Jesus clearly explained the parable. In the following passage, Jesus is the Son of Man. This is Matthew chapter 13, verses 36 to 43. Then he, Jesus, left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the close of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The, quote, children of the kingdom, unquote, obviously belong to God and will be saved for him and by him. The children of the wicked one, the weeds, or tares, are those who are of the world who don't know God. They are harvested or removed from the earth by angels. Unlike my harvesting of the weeds throughout the year in the blueberry patch, this harvest of the children of the wicked one will happen only once at the end of the age. The essence of this harvest story Jesus told concerns what will happen to two groups of people that are alive at the time of Christ's return. Jesus will use his angels to, number one, gather the sons of Satan, which are the weeds or tares, and throw them into the fiery furnace, so that the, number two, 
children of the kingdom, the wheat, will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. It's important to notice here that in Jesus' explanation of the parable, there's no mention of the children of the kingdom being harvested or taken away in this story. It appears they are left, at least for a time, unharvested on the earth. It's also very important to notice the sequence that occurs in this parable. It's because of this sequence that many that read this harvest story then misapply it to the Olivet Discourse and reach various erroneous conclusions. Is this a rapture of the wicked that takes place prior to the church being raptured? Is the gathering that follows the signs Jesus gave, you know, in the sun, moon, stars, and the earthquake, the rapture of the wicked leaving the followers of Christ on the earth? Are the scriptures found later in the Olivet Discourse that talk about two working in the field or at the mill, saying that the one that is taken is evil and the one that is left is a follower of Christ? To understand the answers to these questions, we need to first answer yet another question. Who are the sons of the kingdom in this story? What leads anyone to believe they represent the church? There's a group that qualifies to be called the sons of the kingdom, left on earth after the ecclesia or church has been raptured. Let's look at another scriptural account of a different harvest of the end. This is found in Revelation chapter 14, verses 14 to 16. It says this, Then I looked and beheld a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. The Apostle John, author of the book of Revelation, describes the one sitting on the cloud as looking like the Son of Man. As we've previously noted, this is an expression used for the identification of Jesus in several places in Scripture, like Revelation 1.13, Daniel 7.13, and Matthew 13.37. John most likely would not use the same Son of Man terminology on just any old angel especially after first using it for his Lord at the beginning of the book of Revelation. The wearing of a crown by itself in no way proves or disproves this angel is Jesus. We do see other characters, including the white horse rider of chapter 6 of Revelation, who is likely not Jesus, wearing a crown. However, to further the case that this angel is most likely Jesus, the angel who is sitting on the cloud is wearing a crown. A crown is a sign of power and authority. The wearing of a crown, along with being referred to as the Son of Man, makes a pretty strong case that this angel is actually Jesus. This angel, if not Jesus, is clearly at least acting on his behalf. The identification of this Revelation chapter 14 angel is not as important as what the angel does. The harvest this angel accomplishes fits amazingly well with what Jesus will be doing at the end of the age. As we've seen in the Olivet Discourse, one of the things he'll be doing is gathering the elect. If the harvest of Revelation 14.14 does represent the rapture of the church, 
The next event we should expect to see in Revelation, if it does continue sequentially, and I believe it does, is evidence of God's wrath. What we've already established by comparing Scripture with Scripture is that the day of the Lord and the outpouring of God's wrath follows the rapture of the church. That is, in fact, what we also see taking place in the next Revelation chapter 14 passage. I'll read that for you. This is Revelation chapter 14, verses 17 to 20. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress, as high as a horse's bridle, for sixteen hundred stadia. No one should be looking for a giant angel one day towering above the earth with an enormous cutting tool in his hand. This passage is not talking about God taking out his frustrations by making up a batch of earth-based vino. In this passage, just about everything is symbolic. The meaning of symbolism has to be defined first by comparing Scripture with Scripture and looking in close context. So let's do that. Uh, first, when we look within the passage itself, we'll find that the wine actually symbolically stands for blood. It says, they were trampled in the wine press outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press. We know that the wine press is outside the city, and the city is generally thought to be Jerusalem since it is that city in which the book of Revelation revolves. When we look at several different passages, it's imperative that you notice a similar language that ties this symbolism of God's wrath and the wine press all together. Later on in Revelation, we see Jesus described this way. This is Revelation chapter 19, verses 13 to 16. It says, He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Jesus alone will tread the grapes that will be gathered or harvested and thrown into the winepress of God's wrath. The battle that's mentioned in relationship to the winepress of chapter 19 is none other than the future infamous battle of Armageddon. The armies of the world will be gathered to the place called Armageddon by the divine will of God. We read what John witnessed in Revelation chapter 19, verse 19. It says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. Even though the Antichrist and the rulers of the earth 
think it's their own decision to come together to make war against Israel and their Messiah. It's by the will of God that they will be gathered. One of the last things that we see happen as God pours out his judgment on the earth are demonic spirits that are loosed specifically to entice and gather the kings of the earth to the place of the final battle. Let's read about that in Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 14. And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon, Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils, working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world, to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. A second passage, just a verse later in uh, verse 16. And he gathered them together into a place called, in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. As a side note regarding the battle of Armageddon and the role of the followers of Jesus, one should not worry about not having the stomach for war. It's a controversial subject whether or not the army that accompanies the Lord will be the church or the ecclesia, or his angels, or both. But even if the Lord does decide to take his new bride, the church, along with him into battle, there's nothing to dread. As written, the Lord himself will tread the grapes of God's wrath. Listen to this awe-inspiring passage from Isaiah. As you do, realize that the Lord himself provides the answers to two questions that are asked. This is from the book of Isaiah, chapter 63, verses 1 to 6. I'm going to add some character identification, a little bit of narration into here. So a question is asked. Who is this that comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. Jesus answers, It is I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And a second question is asked, Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? Jesus answers, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in my anger and trample them in my fury, and their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of the redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore my own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury upheld me. And I will tread down the people in my anger, and make them drunk in my fury." and I will bring down their strength to the earth. Jesus is the only one who will have blood-stained garments. All of his followers' robes are seen to be white and clean. The Battle of Armageddon will be somewhat anticlimactic for those who have come looking for a good fight. It'll be over in an instant. Jesus will accomplish this by simply speaking it into being. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, we read, And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, 
and he treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. The sword of his mouth is the same sword we see in John's description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, when John's describing his Lord. This sword that comes out of the mouth of Jesus is the Word of God. It's the same Word of God that caused worlds to leap into existence at the time of creation. It will be the same sword that makes swift work of those who oppose Jesus at Armageddon. When God speaks, things happen. In reference to this battle, we read the following in Revelation chapter 19, verse 21. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeds out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. The only ones at this battle not killed with the sword are the Antichrist and the false prophet, who are cast directly into the lake of fire. The word of God that comes out of the mouth of Jesus either itself causes his enemies to be slain or it causes his angelic warriors to act as his agents and carry out his will. Either way, Jesus owns what occurs as a result. By making all these scriptural comparisons, we're led to the conclusion that the blood coming out of the wine press is the blood of the ungodly people of the world who have been gathered at a harvest and thrown into God's wine press, Armageddon. What about the ungodly people of the world who are not gathered to Armageddon? Are they off the hook? We'll talk about that. The similarities in the connection between the Matthew 13 passage regarding the harvest of the wheat and tares, or the children of the kingdom and the children of Satan, and the Revelation 14 passage having to do with the two separate harvests, are strong. However, trouble begins when we try to say that the children, or sons of the kingdom in the Matthew 13 passage, are the same as those that are apparently raptured by the angel, or Jesus, sitting on the white cloud in Revelation chapter 14. In Matthew 13, the ungodly weeds are harvested first. In Revelation 14, the ungodly grapes are harvested second. To state this again, Matthew 13, first, the wicked, or weeds, are gathered and destroyed. Then, the sons of the kingdom are left. Revelation 14, the righteous are gathered first. Then, the wicked, the grapes, are gathered and destroyed. So, which is it? Are the ungodly harvested first or second? On the surface, if we try to force the events of the two passages together, we run into a sequential problem. Did God not intend us to pay attention to this detail, or is it simply unimportant? How do we fit all this together? Well, post-tribulational rapturists are those who say that the church will go through the entire tribulation period, God's wrath, and all. Some who hold to this theory may point to the Matthew 13 passage as being one that defends their position. They view the harvest of the wheat as the rapture of the church that takes place at the very end of the tribulation period, only after the wrath of God has occurred and the weeds or grapes have been removed. If you hold to this theory, you still need to deal with the sequence conflict between Matthew 13 and Revelation 14. The real solution is clear when we realize that we're not talking about the same groups of people in the two different passages, at least partially anyway. The ungodly people who are harvested 
and destroyed in both passages are the same. The harvest of the Matthew 13 weeds and Revelation 14 grapes that are thrown into the winepress are referring to the same event, the judgment of the wicked at the end of the age. The leaving of the wheat, or children of the kingdom, in Matthew chapter 13, and the rapture, as seen in Revelation 14.14 and the Olivet Discourse, are dealing with two different events and groups of people. In Revelation 14.14, the harvest or rapture takes place before the wicked have been gathered. In Matthew 13, the wheat, or children of the kingdom, are left after the wicked have been gathered. Who are these children of the kingdom if the church is already gone? Notice again the language of Matthew 13. Jesus said, The field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. And then a couple of verses later, The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do sin. These passages are talking about a future time when God will establish his kingdom on the earth. This weeding of the field or cleansing of the earth of the sons of the evil one will come at the time when Jesus has brought his kingdom to this world, which in this parable is called the field. Jesus' kingdom does not come to this world until Jesus returns. Who will be left on the earth after the church has been raptured and all of the ungodly people have been gathered and thrown into the fiery furnace? Besides some lucky souls who never took the mark of the beast and somehow escape all of the fatal portions of the wrath of God, there will be a group left on the earth to which Scripture refers. They'll be like the seed stock of the millennial kingdom. This is the group that Scripture is referring to as the children of the kingdom. This is found in Revelation chapter 14, 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty-four thousand, having his father's name written on their foreheads. Skipping up to verses 4 and 5. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they're virgins. These are they which follow the lamb wherever he goes. They were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. How is it this group of 144,000 children of the kingdom made it through the tribulation period on the earth and able to stand with Jesus on Mount Zion? It's because they were divinely sealed prior to the beginning of God's wrath. You can read about that in Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 to 4. Well, these 144,000 male virgins are supernaturally sealed about the same time we see the church standing before the throne in heaven, just after the sixth seal of the scroll of Revelation was broken. Both the church being gathered to heaven and the protective sealing of the 144,000 children of the kingdom occurs before God's wrath begins. So we put it all together, you tie all of the harvest and the rapture passages together, it sounds something like this. The elect of God, the church, are gathered together by his angels into the presence of God. Then the ungodly, the weeds or children of the evil one, 
are gathered together and thrown into the fiery furnace in God's winepress. And finally, the children of the kingdom, the 144,000 descendants of the tribes of Israel, are left on the earth to live in the kingdom of heaven that has been brought to the earth by King Jesus. There's another point of view that I told you about before. Some who hold the pre-tribulation rapture point of view don't believe that the church is even mentioned in the book of Revelation after chapter 3. They believe that the first angel mentioned in Revelation 14 doesn't represent the rapture of the church. They think it represents a harvest of a different kind. Remember, the pre-trib view is that point of view that says that the church will be caught up or snatched away secretly and suddenly prior to any end times events without any sign or warning. What this Revelation 14 angel does in this theory represents not that rapture, but a great harvest of souls that takes place after the rapture of the church. These souls make up what they call tribulation saints. The pre-tribulation rapture theory's secondary harvest is due, what they think, to a large-scale revival of mankind turning to God during the Great Tribulation. This, some think, is a result of the 144,000 Jewish witnesses and the gospel angel, if you'll remember him, who proclaimed the eternal gospel. This all takes place after the church is no longer found on the earth. The same theory argues that the Holy Spirit will have left the earth with the church at the rapture and won't even be present on the earth during this time of what they call a great revival. I believe they are wrong on all counts. There are many problems with the pre-tribulation rapture theory. Here's a few of them. The Bible doesn't even hint that the 144,000 descendants of the tribe of Israel mentioned in Revelation chapter 7 have anything to do with witnessing to anyone. They are not gospel spreaders. In fact, during the second half of the tribulation period, they'll be in hiding in the wilderness. We'll discuss the role of the 144,000 descendants of the tribes of Israel in a future podcast. Secondly, we find overwhelming scriptural evidence that there won't be any turning towards God during this period of time. Rather, there'll be a great falling away. There'll be anything but revival. The following scriptures dealing with the end do not support people turning to God after the church is raptured as the pre-tribulation rapture theory suggests. I'm going to bombard you here with some scripture. Let's listen. This is Second Thessalonians, as, as though you can do anything else. Um, I'll read it for you. This is Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. This is 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 10 to 12. And with all deceit of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5 to says, This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. 
For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3-4 for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. In Revelation chapter 9, verses 20 to 21. And the rest of the men which were not killed by the plagues yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. And finally, Revelation chapter 16, verses 10 to 11. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, and his kingdom was full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues for pain, and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and repented not of their deeds. These judgments didn't cause people to turn towards God. It hardened their hearts, just like the plagues of Egypt. Well, in his book, Antichrist Before the Day of the Lord, Author Alan Kirshner writes, Any repentance by Gentiles and Jews during the day of the Lord's wrath will occur through God's gracious exception. It will not be the rule. I completely concur with Kirshner. So, who would do the convicting and saving apart from God's Holy Spirit, if their theory is correct? So there's this third problem with the Revelation 14 angel representing a great harvest of souls during a post-rapture revival, if what they say is true. If the Holy Spirit has left the earth, as the pre-tribulation rapture theory says, who does the calling and saving of souls? Are these post-rapture Christians not called by the Holy Spirit and not indwelled by Him upon their salvation? Will they be Christians in head knowledge and name only? What scripture in the Bible supports being spiritually reborn and saved apart from the work of the Holy Spirit? Are these like Christian zombies or something? Saying that there'll be a great revival during the tribulation period where there is, according to the same theory, no Holy Spirit present is clearly not consistent with the rest of the Word of God. However, saying the Revelation 14 angel passage represents the rapture of the church harmonizes perfectly with the rest of Scripture. So, why do they think the Holy Spirit's gone? Believing the Holy Spirit's gone and won't be present on earth after their pre-tribulation rapture is a widespread belief among pre-tribulation rapturists. That theory is even included in the Ryrie Study Bible. People that believe this theory do so for a couple of reasons. First, they believe that the church is the entity that the Holy Spirit accomplishes His purposes through. Without the church present on the earth, the Holy Spirit will essentially be 
taken out of the way of Satan. There won't be anyone left on the earth to put into action the will of God or His Holy Spirit. Second, they base this component of the pre-tribulation rapture theory on the following passage of Scripture that we've seen before. In speaking of the Antichrist, Paul wrote the following in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The pre-tribulation rapture theory says that the one who is currently restraining or withholding the mystery of lawlessness and the Antichrist in the future is the Holy Spirit. Well, that much is correct. However, they also say the Holy Spirit will withdraw and be absent from the earth along with the church and therefore be powerless to restrain evil. Yeah. This interpretation, (laughs) where the Spirit of our omnipresent God, that He's somehow absent, is very unlikely. A more likely scenario is that the Almighty Holy Spirit of God will simply allow Satan to act while still being present. This is how our all-powerful, omnipotent, and omnipresent God has always operated. How He accomplishes this is the subject of a different book. Nevertheless, It's only by the will of God that Satan is allowed to do anything. There's nowhere one cannot find God. God, by his very nature, is present everywhere and is all-powerful with or without human beings in the form of his church to carry out his will. He did a pretty good job creating the heavens and the earth without us, for example. No one, no place, and no thing will ever be out of the reach of God and His Holy Spirit or out of His control. Satan will run unbridled in the world only because God will allow it for a, quote, appointed time, unquote. It's also God who will cut short those days when Satan will be unrestrained for the sake of the elect. We've talked about that before. The final major problem with the great revival taking place after the elect of God have been rescued is that immediately after the rapture of the church, the day of the Lord begins. The day of the Lord is that future period of time when God will pour his wrath out on the earth. As seen in Revelations chapter 8, 9, and 16, the wrath of God includes this following list. There'll be hail and fire mixed with blood. A third of the earth, trees, and grass will be burned. Something like a great mountain burning with fire will be thrown into the sea. A third of the sea will become like blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea will die, and a third of the ships will be destroyed. A great star will fall from heaven, blazing like a torch, and fall on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. Many people will die from the polluted water. Then a third of the sun will be struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. From smoke will come stinging locusts on the earth, and they'll have power to sting like scorpions. They'll be allowed to torment people for five months, but not to kill them. Then there's four angels who have been bound who will be released 
to kill a third of mankind. Moving on to the bold judgments found in Revelation chapter 16, we see harmful and painful sores will come upon the people who bear the mark of the beast and worship its image. The sea will become like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing in the sea will die. All the rivers and the springs of water will become like blood. The sun will scorch people with fire. The Antichrist kingdom will be plunged into darkness. People will gnaw their tongues in anguish and curse the God of heaven for their pains and sores. There will be great earthquakes such have never been since man was on earth. The great city, Jerusalem, will be split into three parts and the cities of the nations will fall. Every island will sink and every mountain will collapse. Great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, will fall from heaven on the people of the earth. To be really clear, the list that I just read you are all the things that followers of Christ are promised to not endure in association with the end of the age. And I'm personally very happy about that. Christians have clearly been promised that they will not have to suffer God's wrath. It says so in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. If there is a great revival after the church has been raptured and people are becoming Christians during the day of the Lord when God's wrath is being poured out on the earth, how is it these new Christians have to endure God's wrath? Is there such a thing as being a second-class Christian that will have to go through God's wrath? Will 1 Thessalonians 5.9 not apply to them? As terrible as the persecution at the hands of the Antichrist might be, it pales in comparison to what will happen on the earth when God's wrath is poured out. God's elect are not appointed to suffer that wrath, so they will not be present during that time. Therefore, there cannot be a great revival after the rapture of the church. So in answer to the question, can someone be saved or counted a member of the elect after the rapture of the church? My answer is yes. Anything is possible if God wills it. But if they are, they'll require some sort of supernatural protection from God's wrath, and we're not told about that. Then if they live until the end of that period, they'll be sorted out during what's called the sheep and goats judgment. And that's the topic of another future podcast. To try and sum all this up, there's several different groups of people that help make up the cast of characters found in biblical prophecy pertaining to the end of the age. Many people trip up when they attempt to superimpose the church into every prophecy or take the church out and say the prophecies only deal with Israel. In fact, Both the church and Israel play important independent supporting roles in God's end-time drama in which Jesus is clearly the star. In regard to the prophecies concerning harvests that I just talked about, there are two different harvests and three different groups of people involved. First, the church, who we see raptured or harvested. Next, the sons of or children of Satan, the non-believing unsaved, who we see harvested and then thrown into the winepress of God's wrath. And finally, number three, the children of the kingdom, who are considered the first fruits that are left to live in the new kingdom Jesus will establish. 
This is the group referred to as the 144,000 individuals made up of all the tribes of Israel. We'll see more of this group as we continue to study what Jesus said during his Olivet Discourse. I get there are a lot of moving parts involved with what I just talked about. Please take the time to read the scriptures I cited. Meditate on these harvests and ask God for clarity. Maybe listen to the podcast again. If you have my book that this podcast uh, study is based on, it's called Watch. What I just covered is in chapter 18. There, I've included a chart which graphically sorts out the two different harvests. It's an important concept to grasp for understanding some upcoming scripture in the Olivet Discourse. Well, next time, we'll talk about that time when Jesus was asked a question, and his response, to paraphrase, was, I don't know. Until then, so long from the banks of beautiful Lost Creek in the shadow of the Oregon Cascade Mountain Range. God bless, be at peace, and Maranatha. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com. That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.